It's very good to be here. It's a privilege to fellowship with you and to open up the Word of God together because that is our life, is it not? So I want to read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 18. Let me give you the context there. Absalom, David's son, has organized a coup against his father, David. And David's men are not too keen on that. And they're about to go to war against Absalom to remove the threat to the kingdom and to their king, David. So that's where we pick up. They're just about to go off to war, 2 Samuel 18. And I should tell you that it's a long reading. I'm going to read the whole of 2 Samuel 18 and then all the way into 2 Samuel 19, the first half of verse 8. And because it's so long, I'll read it rather quickly. And as we read, keep in mind some of the main characters. There's David the king, there's Joab, his main commander, and there's Absalom. And if you follow those characters, you'll catch the story very well. So this is the living word of the living God. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great terebinth, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver... I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now, 
Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimeaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. 
And all the people came before the king. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our Father in heaven, we are such a privileged people that you've given us your word. And it is our desire this morning that the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures in the first place would also work with us and in us, that he would open up our eyes and our hearts and that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his indescribable glory. Indeed, our prayer is that Christ himself would come amongst us and that he would preach himself to us and that our hearts would go out to him in love and devotion and adoration and affection and that we would be transformed by the ministry of your word that we would delight in Christ and him crucified. And in his name we pray these things. Amen. It is a story of intense drama. It's a very moving episode in the life of King David, a story that drips with pathos. The old man, King David, is sending out his men to battle against his son, who has attempted to usurp the throne. And as his men file past him, he speaks to the commanders and says to them, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Everyone heard it, including the general Joab. But Joab disregarded the king's request. And when Absalom was hanging there suspended between heaven and earth, Joab takes three javelins and thrusts them into Absalom's heart and he falls to the ground and then he is killed. He might as well have plunged those javelins into the heart of the King David himself. The young man Absalom becomes Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. David refuses to be comforted. David is filled with indescribable anguish and unspeakable grief. David's son, Absalom, has been killed. And anyone here with an ounce of compassion will feel very deeply for David. How could he sustain such sadness and grief over the death of a son whom he desperately loved? But the question I want you to struggle with this morning as we go through this passage is this. Is the death of Absalom a good thing or is it something lamentable and regrettable? Or to frame it in terms of the two main characters in the chapter, do we applaud Joab for his sense of justice in his killing of Absalom or do we affirm David because of his fatherly love for his son? Do we applaud Joab for his sense of justice, or do we affirm David for his fatherly love? Now, at first glance, you might think that's a no-brainer. Absalom is a scoundrel. He deserves to die. Because not only did Absalom uh, lay hands on the Lord's anointed, But to compound his error, he has laid hands on the Lord's anointed, who happened at the same time to be his father. Absalom is a self-centered person. He has been grooming the affections of the nations for years, all in an attempt to seize the throne and to destroy his father. Absalom's a scoundrel. And men like that deserve to die. 
God has said that right at the beginning of the universe, that there is only one God, and this one God is to be adored and worshipped to the exclusion of all other gods. And in the nation of Israel, which is a microcosm of God's cosmic kingdom, there can only be one king. And that king is to be honored to the exclusion of all others. And at this juncture in Israel's history, David is the God-anointed and God-appointed king. And therefore, David is deserving of all honor and affection. And so Absalom deserves to die. Men who take matters in their own hands, who reject God's will, they deserve to die. And that's why the way that Absalom's buried is a very fitting monument to his character. You might have noticed the contrast in verses 16 and 17, that while Absalom was alive, he had built for himself a pillar in his own name and called it Absalom's monument. But after he was killed, they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And we remember Absalom less from the monument that he erected to himself and more from the pile of stones. And if you know biblical history at all, you'll remember that this is a lot like the way Achan died. Achan was stoned to death, and then he was buried under a heap of stones because Achan dies under the curse, and so does Absalom. Absalom has rejected the Lord's anointed. What's more, David as the king was there to execute justice on God's behalf. He reigned over Israel in God's stead. And so justice was to be meted out by the king. And this was the great thing about King David. Right at the beginning of his reign, as told at the beginning of the uh, second book of Samuel, someone came to David after Saul was killed and claimed that he had killed Saul. And David is incredulous. And he says to the man, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then he turns to his man, David does, and says, go execute that man. That man who claimed that he had killed the Lord's anointed. Because that was the role of the king, to exercise justice in the land. And this great injustice of overthrowing or destroying the Lord's anointed needed to be met with strict justice. And death was an appropriate punishment. And so Joab here is right. He might not have been right in disobeying the king's command, but he was right in that he had this instinctive sense that Absalom deserved to die. And so from that perspective, this is a great day in the nation of Israel. David the king's throne remains. The usurper and rebel is destroyed. It ought to be a day of gladness and celebration. Joab was right to kill Absalom, the rebel. And so you can understand then the elation of Ahimeaz in verse 19. He says to Joab, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from all his enemies. You see, Ahimeaz instinctively knows that this is good news. Because though threat to the throne has been removed, David's kingdom is no longer under attack. And so he says, let me run and tell the news. But Joab's been around the block more than once. He knows of David's deep affection for Absalom. He knows as well that David's not going to take too kindly to this news. 
And so he says, no, Ahimeaz, you're not going to go. I'm going to send the Cushite instead. Evidently, Cushites were expendable in those days. Didn't matter if the Cushite felt the wrath of King David, but there was no way I'm going to lose Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And so the Cushite runs, but Ahimeaz is so convinced that this is good news. He says, I want to run. I want to tell the king the news. And so finally, under his persistence, Joab allows him to go, and Ahimeaz outruns the Cushite, and he arrives at David's gate where David is anxiously awaiting the news. And he says to the king, all is well. Verse 28, he bows before the king with his face to the earth and praises God. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. This is a, a great day. Your enemy is destroyed, David. Your throne is intact. God has exercised justice against your enemy. And so he's quite unprepared for David's question. David says, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the ESV has smoothed out the grammar, but in the Hebrew as as Ahimeaz responds, it's kind of like, well, I, 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 I was there and I, I saw a great commotion, but, but I don't really know what happened. It, it's, like, it's like Ahimeaz is, is taken aback at the question. I mean, I've just told you good news, David, that, that your kingdom has been spared and your concern is only about your son Absalom. Ahimeaz doesn't get it. David tells him to stand to the side, and then the Cushite comes. And the Cushite says too, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And wouldn't you know it, David has the same question. Is all well with a young man, Absalom? And the Cushite tactfully responds, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. It's a day of gladness, of rejoicing, because the enemy has been destroyed. But David doesn't see it that way. It sends David quaking. He's deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And listen, he is so moved that he doesn't even have a sense of decorum to wait, to weep until he's in private where his own men aren't going to see him weep. Look at, look at what it says. He's so brokenhearted. And as he went, so as he leaves the presence of his men to go weep, he can't hold back the grief. As he went, he cries out, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then chapter 19 begins with Joab being told that the king is inconsolable. He's weeping and mourning for Absalom. And, and that has ruined everything for the soldiers. They feel like they're the guilty party when, when they've just handed the king the victory. David is, is grieving so badly that the soldiers, they, they slink away like as if they themselves had been defeated instead of having been victorious. And 
So we applaud Joab when he goes into the house of the king and says, David, you have today humiliated your man. You are a cruel, thoughtless king. You hate those who love you. Those men who are willing to lay down their lives for you to protect you and your wives and your concubines and your kingdom. You hate them. And this scoundrel Absalom who has given you nothing but grief all your life. Well, you love him. You hate those who love you. You love the one who hates you. And he cuts to the chase at the end of verse 6 and says, Today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. So we agree with Ahimeaz and the Cushite and Joab and the soldiers. This is a great day. The enemy has been destroyed. David is far too sentimental. He is a syrupy, doting father who has lost his way. He has no concern for the kingdom, no concern for the nation, cares not one whit for the lives and the devotion of his soldiers, and he has ruined his men. There's no rousing speech of thanks. There's no adulation for their bravery. There's no encouragement for their devotion in the midst of so much treachery. No, David has abdicated his role. His only concern is about his son, Absalom. And so we side with justice. Absalom deserves to die. He got what was coming to him for rejecting the Lord's anointed. This is a day of victory. And yet, how can you rejoice in the death of your son? Even if your son is a wayward, rebellious son, how do you rejoice in that? You know, it's not that David didn't know that Absalom was a scoundrel. He knew that. That's why he said to his men, deal gently with a young man Absalom for my sake. Because he understood that, that if you dealt with Absalom according to his sake, he deserves to be destroyed. So it's not that David was thinking, that Absalom wasn't guilty. He, he knew he was, and yet, you know, doesn't there have to be grief and anguish? Could there be anything else? Is justice so cold, so hard-nosed that it doesn't feel? Doesn't there have to be tears and grief and inconsolable anguish? What would you think if David stood up and high-fived Ahimeaz and Cush and the Cushites? Yeah, he's gone. What would you think if he had done that? So setting aside whether Joab ought to have disobeyed the king, we can say that Joab is right in his justice. But is David wrong in his love? Well, I think not. And actually, I, I think even more than that, that in David's grief and anguish, we have displayed for us the character of our God. One of the most moving passages in the Old Testament prophets is found in Hosea 11. Hosea 11, and in that chapter, God is looking through his photo album, and he says to his nation, Israel, his people, his son, he says, remember? Remember when you're just a little kid and and I taught you how to walk. I, 
I stood behind you. I, I held your arms and I taught you how to walk. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. He says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. And, and he says, and, and how have you repaid me for all of my love and my fatherly devotion to you? How has Israel repaid me? Well, well, they've rejected him. They've turned their backs on their father. They've gone to other gods, giving their hearts to idols who are not gods. And, and they've rejected their father. And, and God says, I know what this means. I know that I must destroy them. That this is what justice calls for. This is what I had promised, that if my people, if they turn away to other gods, then I will come upon them in judgment because I am God and there is no other. I know I must punish them. You know, how can I punish them? I love them. That's my son. He's been my son from their youth. How can I, how can I punish the ones I love? And the Lord says in Hosea 11, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And he resolves that he will not execute his anger. He will not destroy his people because he is God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath because love has conquered justice. And then there's the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's on the way to Jerusalem to the cross and he overlooks the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem has treated him very badly. They've rejected him. He went about doing good and they've repaid his good with evil. They've scorned him. They ridiculed him. In just a few days, they're going to call out, crucify him, crucify him. And, and the Lord Jesus knows that they are, they're actually calling the judgment of God upon themselves because of their recalcitrant and wicked hearts. And what does he say? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says this weeping, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not. And Jesus sees the specter of the judgment of God hanging over his people and it fills him with anguish and grief and sadness. David says, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. So what I want to say is that as the Scots would say it, Joab might have one end of the stick, justice. Absalom deserves to die. But David has the other end of the stick. Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And there is this tension in this passage. In fact, the tension comes out very clearly at the end there in chapter 19, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. And you know that the last place David wants to be is at the gate. The only reason he's at the gate is because Joab said, David, if you don't go to that gate, you're done. And the only reason the people are at the gate is not because they have such affection for their king. He has just dissed them and disregarded them and has treated their sacrifice as nothing. 
But the only reason they're there is because the king's there. What do you do when the king shows up for an audience? Well, you do what they did. You come before the king. And so the story ends with this unresolved tension. There's no resolution here. And we want it cleared up. That's always our inclination. Whenever there are things that that don't quite match, we want them cleared up. So on the one hand, we want David to recognize that Absalom did deserve to die. That he's a scoundrel. We want him to confess that, that the death of Absalom was right and just and pleasing to God. But but we also want him to weep because it's his son who's died. We want justice, but, but we don't want cold justice. We want justice and love, and we want them to be resolved and reconciled. And in this passage, it doesn't happen. There's justice in Joab, there's love in David, and they're at odds with one another. Now, I, I want to bring this story home to you. It ought to be a very familiar story. You know when you hear something, you say, I think I've heard that somewhere before. Well, that's, that's the way you should be thinking when you hear the story of, of Absalom. You say, well, that's awfully familiar. I've heard that somewhere before. And the reason this story is so familiar, it's because this is our story. This is who we are. We are Absalom. Remember, Absalom's the son of the king who rejected his father's authority, usurped his kingship, and tried to climb on the throne himself. And that's who we are. That's humanity. We are created as the sons of God. Adam was created to be the son of God. That's the way Luke says it in Luke 3, 33. And the God whom we've been created as sons to is also the king. And we, in our first father, Adam, We've rebelled against this king. We said to him, we do not want you to be on the throne. We want to be on the throne. So that in the Garden of Eden, when there was this temptation to do what God had forbidden, Adam basically said, God, I know what you said. I know that you're the king. I know what your will is, but I don't want your will. I don't want you to be king. I want to be my own king and set my own parameters and do what I want to do. My will, not your will, O God. And as he tore God off the throne, he installed himself on it. So that's the way we all come into this world. We come in as traitors and as treasonous against our rightful king. You know what that means? It means that we're under the judgment of God. God will not stand idly by while sinners rebel against him. The justice of God demands our death. That God cannot just wink at our sin or be grandfatherly and say, (laughs) they'll grow out of it, it's all right. Would you like another sweet? No, for, for God not to deal with our sin in justice is for God to decriminalize sin and to legalize disobedience. And for God to do that means that he's no longer God. Because he's condoning what is evil and contrary to his character. And so God must punish us. And the punishment of God against our sin is eternal punishment of soul and body in hell. Now, that might be a difficult thing for you to grasp. You you might think that God has gone uh, over the top on this. 
that the punishment is, is all out of sorts with, with the infringement. All Adam did was, was take a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, he disobeyed God, but it wasn't that significant. Well, it's, it's a good question to ponder. Is, is the judgment of God fair? Is it in keeping with, with the demands of justice? And, and the first thing you want to say is that it isn't a surprise. This is exactly what God said to Adam and Eve. The day that you eat of the tree, uh, you will surely die. And he didn't just mean physical death, but he meant spiritual death and eternal death. So, so it's not a surprise. shouldn't have been a surprise. It's exactly what God said he would do. But then there's something else. And I've been much helped by this over the years when, when I've pondered this question. Is, is God extravagant in his punishment? And I get this insight from the English Puritan Thomas Goodwin. He lived from the year 1600 to 1680. And he says this. He says, we determine the seriousness of our sin, not from the event, but from the intent. So how do you judge how bad an action is? You don't judge it just from the action itself. But what you try to do is, is suss out what's behind that action. What's the intention of the action itself. And so sin is, is not just some breaking of a written moral code somewhere that, that we disobey so that the moral code says you shall not kill, but I'm going to kill anyways. Sin is not just some disobedience of, of, of a written moral law. No. And this is where Goodwin comes in. He says sin is actually an affront against God and the intention of sin here it is. The intention of sin is to ungod the great God. To ungod the great God. It's to say, God, you are not God. And for sure you're not God for me. It's to ungod the great God. And when you see sin in that way, not from the event itself, but from the intention behind sin, that any time I disobey God, I'm actually saying to him, not your will, but my will be done. I don't care who is God, because I want to be God. Whenever we sin, we're actually ungodding the great God. When you see sin that way, then, then you understand that, that these are not peccadillos. These are not minor infractions. That any sin is a serious matter. Because sin is against a God of, of infinity and of glory and majesty. And the punishment must be a punishment of eternal weight and length. I have a friend who does prison ministry in Canada, and he'll tell me sometimes about the prisoners that he meets with. He does Bible studies with them, and he says, oh, so-and-so is a lifer. And I always say, well, what's he in prison for? And he says, well, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. He's not a lifer because he was stealing cookies. He must have done something serious, or he would never be in life, in prison for life. And humanity must have done something serious. Or God would never insist that his justice demands our eternal death. Do you? Do you believe this? Do you feel this? I'm sure that as we went through the first half of this chapter, you were applauding Joab for justice. Of course, Absalom deserves to die. Now here's the question. Do you applaud God as well? Of course, I deserve to die. I don't know about you, but, but I do know about me. 
And I do know about many of my fellow Christians that, that were actually far too casual about the justice of God. I, th I think we... I think we minimize the seriousness of our sin, that we run too quickly. And I want to be careful here, but that we say, yes, we're a sinner, and then we run to the mercy of God. But it's good, isn't it, to linger over the justice of God, to feel the weight of the seriousness of, of our sin pressing down upon us, not so that we would be miserable, but so that we would then glory in Jesus Christ and in the mercy of God in Christ. On July 8, 1741, the great American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards entered the meeting house in Enfield, Connecticut. It was said that when he got there, the people were rowdy and didn't even act according to common decency. There was lots of chatter and frivolity in the room. And then he started preaching. He started preaching the sermon that we now know as sinners in the hand of an angry God. And as he talked about the justice of God and the desert of judgment that we all have coming to us, there was this palpable change over the congregation. There was this quietness. And then there was this anguish, this calling out for Christ to save people and people hanging on to the pillars so that they, they would not fall that moment into the, the depths of hell. In fact, there was, there was such a commotion in the, in the service that Jonathan Edwards couldn't finish his sermon that day. Now, the reason Edwards talked about the horror of hell was not to terrify the people. There was no malicious intention in his sermon, but it was so that they would know that this day is a day of grace and Christ is flinging open wide the doors of mercy and he's standing in the door and he's calling out and crying for sinners to come to him that they might have life and salvation through his blood. So, so he wanted them to feel the, the horrors of hell, to stare deep into the pit, even to feel the, the heat of hell so that they would then run to Jesus Christ for, for mercy and collapse in the arms of a gracious Savior who has taken their punishment for them. He wanted them to feel the seriousness of sin so that they would know the riches of the depths of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And we need that, brothers and sisters. We need to. We're far too casual. And, and our culture doesn't encourage us to, to think seriously about God and about, about the fear of God. This was one of the questions at the Banner of Truth Conference. What does the church need? And, and someone says, we need a sense of the fear of God. We've, we've dumbed God down. We've remade him in our own image. And you'll know the Bible. You'll know that Paul does this too. He talks to the Ephesian Christians who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, Remember what you were, that you were by nature dead in your trespasses and sins. And you want to say, Paul, why would you bring that up? Why would you remind them of how wicked they were, that they used to walk according to the pattern of this world and following the prince? That's all past, Paul. Why bring it up again? Well, he brought it up so that he could tell them, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when we were dead. It is by faith 
we have been saved through grace. It would do us so much good if we would linger over the seriousness of sin and the justice of God that calls out for our condemnation. But God loves us. God so loved the world. God loves us even though we're sinners. Even though we've rebelled. In, in fact, I don't know of, I'm sure there are parents here that have children who are wayward. And isn't it true that if your son goes wayward, doesn't your heart go out even more deeply to that son, to the wayward son? Don't you even love them more? And here is God. He's created humanity in his image as his sons, and they've rebelled against him, and his, and his heart goes out to him. He has compassion on them, and he sends his only son to the world. Why? Because he loves them. But how can love and justice, how, how can they meet? How can he be both just and call for our judgment and, and loving and call for our son? How does that work? We'll go back to the story. So we have justice in Joab who destroys Absalom. You have love in David who weeps for his son. But there is no resolution in the story. And the reason there's no resolution in the story is because of one sentence at the end of chapter 18 where David is saying, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, here it is. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. You see, if what David wanted to do could be done, if David could have died in Absalom's place, then Absalom's sin would have been paid and Absalom's life would have been spared. But what David wished to do, David could not do. And all of the Old Testament is longing for that day when someone will come, a king will come, a king who has been offended will come. And when that king says, not only do I wish to die for you, I will So it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that resolves the tension that's in this passage between the justice and the love of God so that in Christ, love and justice meet. Let me just work this out for a bit. So in love, God gives his son for sinners. The son takes upon himself responsibility for his people's sins. Our sins are laid upon his shoulders. And because Christ then is treated as the guilty one because he's loaded with our sins, the justice of God demands his destruction. That's what the cross is all about. So that Jesus goes to the cross innocent in himself but guilty because of our sins and God pours out on him the justice of God against sin and Christ cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And because in justice Christ is punished, listen to this, now in justice God must forgive our sins. See, if your sin has been punished in Jesus Christ already, then God cannot punish you again for that sin because the penalty has been paid Justice has been satisfied. 
And so now in justice, God must forgive all those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because in loving justice, because Christ has been cursed for us, in loving justice, the blessing of God must flow to us so that in Jesus Christ, love and justice meet. But you say, it might have been loving justice for us, but is it loving justice for Christ? In the UK, there was this evangelical, quote, unquote, leader who says that uh, if what I just said about the cross is true, that, that the Father is damning the Son for the sins of His people, then that's cosmic child abuse. And they would say, if that's true, then, then the words of Joab that he spoke to David when he says, David, you hate those who love you. If the cross is the way you explain it, this fellow would say, then God hates Jesus to treat him in that way. But that's not true. There's no hint of hatred in the cross. When the father pours out his wrath on his son, he doesn't do it because he hates his son or because he's angry with his son. He loves his son. Remember his baptism. This is my beloved son at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. He loves his son. And in fact, he loves his son especially because his son went to the cross willingly for sinners. So what Jesus said in John 10, the reason my father loves me is because I laid down my life for the sheep. So that throughout the whole of Jesus' life, the Father loved the Son, but now in the cross, in the culmination of the, the grand drama of redemption, when the Father is, I know, this is just too much to take in, but it bears thinking about that in the drama of the cross, when the Father is damning His Son, and the Son is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken when the father is damning the son, he never loved his son more than at that moment. So that even the cross for the Lord Jesus is justice. But it's not cold justice. It's not mechanical justice. It's even loving justice for the son. So that in Jesus Christ, God can be loving without canceling justice. He can be loving without overlooking sin. Love doesn't cancel justice. Love fulfills justice, satisfies justice. And that's what God did in the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, justice and love meet. Will you meet at the cross as well? Will you go there to meet with Jesus Christ, to take him as your Savior, to cling to him as your only Redeemer, to recognize the terrible weight of sin and the justice of God that demands your destruction, and yet to see in the cross, there is my Savior, there is my Redeemer, there is the only one who can reconcile me to God. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you know what the Lord's Supper is all about? It's a table where the justice of God and the love of God meet together and they kiss like long-lost friends. 
And the Lord Jesus invites you to meet him there as well. I uh, used to lead a Bible study in the high school in Scotland when I was there. And there, there were two young boys who came. They were virtually the only ones who came. It wasn't a very popular Bible study. But that's just a sad thing because Scotland used to be known as the people of the book. But uh, and I was telling this gospel of Christ willing to take our judgment and our punishment upon himself so that we could go free. And there was one young boy. He was a lovely boy. He said, uh, there's no way I would let him do that for me. No way. I said, why not? He said, because I don't think that's fair. If I've done wrong, I deserve to be punished for it. I said, well, what if he willingly offers himself to do it for you. Would you take it then? I said, no, I just don't think that's fair. If I've done wrong, I'll bear responsibility for it. I thought, you know, it sounds very noble. I love this, love this young boy. He was respectful. He was uh, honorable. He was hardworking. He was, he was a great boy, and I loved him. And, he, and that sounds noble, isn't it? But you know what it is? It's a further indication of humanity's rebellion against God. God says, this is the way. Kiss my son. Believe in the Savior. And he said, not a chance. My will, not yours. Don't make that mistake. Embrace the Lord Jesus. Love him, serve him, honor him, delight in him, rejoice in him. Because he's the only one where love and justice meet. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we have no words really to describe the glory of what you have done for sinners in Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come to earth, to die the death that we deserve, to bear the punishment that was ours, to be damned by your own Father on our behalf. It's uh, too much for us, indescribable. We worship you for it. And we pray that you would bless us as we celebrate this goodness and that we would glory in your grace, and that we would leave from here committed to following Jesus Christ and recognizing him as the treasure of great price, that he's the one worth selling everything for, and that uh, we would be convinced afresh of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray.